Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. It's a handful for him. There's a great finish. We did miss them. Charlie Davies. He got the goal which beat Serbia. He's got the goal this evening which puts the USA in front in this final. Charlie Davies, he's uh, 19 years of age and he's from Boston and he said he'd love a club in the Premiership. There's the hero. There's the man who got the hat trick. Charlie Davies. Remember that name. We might hear it again. Genombrottet i landslaget hade kommit. VM-platsen var redan säkrad. Klivet till en större liga var genomfört efter succén i Hammarby där han stod för många mål och blev en favorit bland supporterna. Allt pekade uppåt för Charlie Davis fram till en ödestiger utekväll som slutade med en bilolycka där en ung kvinna dog och kvinnan som körde bilen dömdes till fängelse. Och för anfallaren väntade en lång rehabtid eftersom han blev svårt skadad och han blev sig aldrig lik på planen igen. I podden berättar Davis om den där kvällen där ett felbeslut förändrade allt och detta bara några månader innan anfallaren skulle få chansen att uppfylla sin livslånga dröm att få spela i VM. I still had to relearn how to walk, how to take a shower, how to put on clothes, how to eat food. Vi pratar naturligtvis om tiden i Hammarby och i Allsvenskan och att Davis efter 12 år nu erkänner att armbågen på Micke Almebäck i Örebro faktiskt var med meningen. And so I threw my elbow back to catch him. Caught him in the mouth, I believe, or the nose, I can't remember. And um and thought, okay, well they, this was off the bomb. You know, they, I'll say I was trying to defend um you know, hold, play hold up hold up uh the ball. And so um Yeah, I, I thought I got away with it. Vi diskuterar även fotbollens tillväxt i USA och statusen på MLS, ligan som Charlie Davis framförallt spelade i efter att han mirakulöst nog återkommit till fotbollen. 
I was I was never the same player because I lost, you know, two two steps, two or three steps of speed. So it's still kind of fast, but not the, the, the quickness I had in the past. Um, but I was so proud of myself to know that I got back to to be able to play. Men podden är naturligtvis mer än det här. Vi pratar om Davis nuvarande karriär i mediebranschen. Om att han tror att Zlatan blivit kvar i MLS. Om han spelat från annan klubb än LA Galaxy. Om skräcken kring Davis cancerbesked. Vilken kontakt han har med Hammarby idag. Och varför han fastnade för fotboll i ett land där sporten egentligen inte är särskilt stor. Samt att han längtar efter den dagen då han får ta med sig sina barn på en Hammarby match i Stockholm. Men som vanligt börjar vi podden en fakta ruta. Age? I am 35 years old. Where do you live? I live in Boston, Massachusetts. Family? I have a wife and twin boys. Uh, they're five years old. Education? Uh, I went to Boston College. Salary? Um, I have a I have a lot of different <laughs> occupations, so um, I have a good salary. <laughs> What do you drive? I drive an Audi Q7. What do you read? I read. Um, I read a, a number of things. I, I read a lot of nonprofit uh, mission statements. What do you watch? I watch whatever my wife wants to watch. What do you listen to? I listen to uh, music that inspires me or gets me to mo- dance. So um, I guess uh, I have an eclectic mix. What do you play? What do I play? I play I play sports with my kids. Which is your greatest experience as a soccer player? Well, as you know, my career has had many ups and downs. But if I had to pick one, my greatest moment was scoring in Azteca Stadium for the U.S. Men's National Team. What's the best trophy that you won or some honor that you picked during your career? Man. Um, usually, I, I guess playing for the Olympic team, the U.S. Olympics team. The toughest opponent that you met? Spain in the 2009 Confederations Cup. Do you have a jersey that you're really happy that you switch with some other player? I do. And it's a tie between Slatan Ibrahimovic and Thierry Henry. Which rule would you like to change in the f- soccer? Which rule? A more consistent VAR usage. Which team is your favorite team and why? Arsenal is my favorite club, and that would be because Thierry Henry um, and Patrick Vieira in that era of the um, uh, of the Gunners was uh, all I could watch at the time, and so naturally that's why uh, I supported them. Favorite movie? 
Favorite movie. I love movies, and this is probably the hardest one. But if I was going to go all the way back and one that stands out to me because it was a family movie, um, it would be Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. As a, a former professional, you probably bought a lot of stuff. Which is your worst buy? <laughs> um, it would probably be, um, oh, man. Yeah, there's been a lot of bad, bad buys. <sighs> My first year with Hammerby, uh, the captain, Miguel Jensen, uh, took me shopping and because uh, my style was so bad. So he took me to um, the Galerian um, in Sudaplan. And I remember I purchased a pair of pants that um, just didn't fit me. And it wasn't it wasn't great. So and they were super expensive. So that would be uh, one of the worst purchases I've, that I've made. When do you lie? When do I lie? Um, I feel like sometimes I'm too nice, so I can't, I can't tell people the truth sometimes. If we take away sports, what was your best subject in school? History. When was the last time you were really, really happy? Yesterday, putting up uh, Christmas decorations with the kids. We uh, ran into each other at uh, Anfield, uh, and uh, I guess that's your connection with football today. What do you do exactly? I do a lot of different things. Um which I think keeps it fun and keeps me engaged uh, post-playing career. So I, uh, I'm the broadcast analyst for the New England Revolution here. I am the in-studio analyst for CBS, which is why you saw me uh, for the U.S. men's national team, but they also had me do sideline reporting for Champions League, which was my first time there. Um, I am the analyst for all of major league soccer's digital content i um i'm on the radio for sirius xm and then i run a non-profit in the city of boston that kind of uh uplifts many different people across different spectrums who who are struggling or suffering or need support you have a lot to do how is it to still be in contact with the sport that you kind of fell in love with when you were a kid yes i knew i could i could never just walk away from the sport that i've grown up that has given me so many opportunities so uh i think when i retired i knew i wanted to be involved but i knew i didn't want to coach at least to start uh, i wanted something uh where i felt like i could make a bigger impact um not to say that coaching isn't down the line in the future that i couldn't make a, a tremendous impact but i i felt that TV is a way that I could still grow the sport, keep people interested um, and still stay connected. And then I worked in the front office uh, for the New England Revolution because I wanted to learn the business of the sport. And so um, those two, I think, are, are a great way for me to, to um, still stay involved. And, you know, if a sporting director is in, in, in my future or a club president, um, I want to keep all those options and those doors open. Uh, how come you fell in love with the 
soccer since in the US is what it is still quite a small sport. Yes, my uh, it was by accident. I had never seen the sport before. And I brought home a piece of paper from school. Um, it was a permission slip. And I was hoping uh, that, you know, it was to, to play American football. And uh, my father, who's from uh, Gambia, uh, got really excited and said, this is what you want to do. And I said, yeah, absolutely. And so he took me to the store. And the next thing I know, I'm getting um, football, uh, soccer cleats and um, a ball and shin guards. And I thought, oh, man, I made the wrong mistake. But I couldn't tell my father that uh, that I I think that we, we have a, a mistake on our hands. And so he brought me to the tryout. I didn't make the team. I could tell he was disappointed. I was disappointed because you don't want to be, um, you know, not good in any particular thing. So he asked me, is, is this something you want to be good at? And I said, yes. And so from that day, all we did was train. And um, it really didn't, I, I'd say I really didn't love the sport until I went to a World Cup match. And I went to a World Cup match uh, two years later. So I was eight years old. And I got to see for my birthday, Bolivia versus South Korea. Two boring teams. Uh, it was a boring game. But uh, the, I think the spectacle of being at a World Cup and seeing so many different walks of life and so many people and, and just the, the passion and the intensity, I said, yes, this is what I want to do. And I kind of think that that's when the dream was born for me. And uh, that was the World Cup in the U.S. 94? Yes. Uh, and your father, who's from Gambia, Kofi, he, he was a former soccer player too. Uh, yes. But he didn't try to push you in that direction. It was you who selected the wrong uh, sport. Yes. I mean, he definitely pushed me once I uh, I wanted to do it. But um, he, he never pushed me in the beginning to, to learn about the sport, to kind of show me the sport. It, it really happened <laughs> as an accident. And then it was, okay, we're going to make this your future. When did you understand that you were quite good and that you maybe had a future in, uh, in living of playing football? I would say when I was 16, 16 I traveled to Europe um, with uh, the regional team of uh the United States, the Eastern regional team. And we played in a, the Blue Dens Cup in Austria. And I scored a bicycle kick against the Austrian national team. I, had a, I scored against Stuttgart. Um, and I, I had a, a phenomenal tournament. And I thought, okay, I have a future in this sport. And, and not only um, playing in the U.S., but I think playing in Europe. And then uh, when I played in the Milk Cup and we won the tournament, I, I knew for sure that that's my dream and and I I can be quite good. Uh, how is uh, soccer doing in the US today? I think it just keeps getting bigger and bigger each year. Uh the 2018 World Cup not not qualifying for that. Um yes, it was painful, but I think it it drew a lot of eyes to the sport. And a lot of people who maybe weren't that interested in soccer all of a sudden were like, "Why aren't we playing in the World Cup? What happened?" And so I think people were generally interested in the sport and, and how can we get back to competing and, and playing in World Cups. And we just have such a, a, a phenomenal generation right now who are all playing in Europe, who are all uh, pretty successful on their on their clubs, and they're very young. So now I think we're heading in the right direction. There's hope. There's new hope around the, the program. 
And so I think with the, the women's national team who are always dominant, who are quite successful, and now this, this young men's national team who are playing for their clubs on Champions League, uh, in the Champions League, and as well as for the U.S. men's national team finally having success, now there's a, a real buzz around the sport, especially considering the World Cup is, is here in 2026. And uh, it's an old Hammarby coach who is uh, the men's national team coach, Greg uh, Beerhalter, who, who was here <laughs> in Hammarby. Yes, uh, we had we had uh, a, a pleasant conversation about um, Hammarby when when I got to play. Actually, when he moved back here and was coaching for the Columbus Crew, uh, we played against them, um, and we had a a uh, catch up just on Stockholm. And he said, "Man, those fans love you. They still love you." Um, and what a what a place uh, you know it was for for him to coach and and understand how kind of football works in Europe and you know you probably can't start at a better club um, with Hammer being the support so uh, we we talked uh, quite in depth about that and then Tony Gustafsson also coached for the, for the U.S. Women's National Team so there's a lot of um, you know people who are connected to Hammer uh in in the United States. Uh, in uh, Sweden and in many Nordic countries, maybe some other countries also in Europe, there's a quite a big discussion about going to Qatar with all their problems with uh, mm-hmm. uh, migrant workers and uh, that uh, homosexuality is illegal and so on. What discussion is there in the U.S. about that? There's a lot of discussions around um, the World Cup and the things that are happening in Qatar and, and how... I think our country is is really, um, you know, pushing, you know, full inclusivity and and diversity and and being accepting of of one another, and so um, I'm interested to see how it plays out because this is a sport that I think is on the the forefront of of changing culture around the world, in especially in sports and in. If we can continue to bring awareness to it, and then we have a successful World Cup, I think uh, it's going to change the game for for everyone to be comfortable, to be who they want to be, and and not have to hide. Um, so I, I think, yeah, the discussions around the World Cup are one. It's you know I think it starts with the corruption of of why they they are hosting the World Cup to begin with, but. We move past that because you can't change anything now. And and now it's just about making sure that this is the right World Cup, that we continue to progress as, as uh, with with humanity and making sure that rights um, of, of everyone are being honored. So we'll see how it goes. I mean, it's it's hard to to really talk on it when we're here and we're not I'm not on the, the front lines and I can't see what's happening in Qatar, but we all we all are well aware of of Qatar and, and their stance on homosexuality. In uh, Sweden, we've also followed kind of the battle between the women's national team and the federation about the equal pay. What's your uh, where are you in that uh, battle? I've always been um, a supporter of, of the women. Um, you know, Mia Hamm was one of my role models as a kid. So, um, and I, I get the chance to to work. Uh, with with some of the the incredible um, alums of of that program, so yes, they they deserve what what the the, the men are, are are getting just because that's I think right now in, in our country we're also fighting for equal rights for women and we're still not there yet. 
So we, we have a long way to go in, in every facet, uh, I think, of the country in terms of equality and equity. And so I think for the women, they've continued to drive this sport as well and, and make it popular and, and draw more eyes to it and attention to it. So um, I couldn't be more proud of what they've been able to accomplish on the pitch. I know it's getting harder because the rest of the world are starting to catch up and putting more resources in, into their programs. But they're still the top dogs. They're still the stars. And, and uh, they, they, I know the men's national team as well uh, are in full support of, of the women and, and the women's league as well in the U.S. Adios now puts it across. It's in the net. Charlie Davies is back. He gives it to Davies. There's number two. It's in the net. Adios slotting it for Davies. That's number three. It's in the net. I know that the Premier League had a record money now when NBC signed a new six-year deal. So he, soccer is growing in the U.S. How is the MLS doing? The MLS is, is fantastic. I mean, it's growing. I think they've finally understand what success is and, and who this league is, the identity of this league. If if you want to be amongst the top leagues, then you have to, one, make sure that everyone in the league is, is moving in the, the same direction. I think now you look at the Major League Soccer model, there's a lot of clubs in Europe and, and leagues in Europe that are like, we need that because we're never in, in, in doubt of clubs when it comes to debt. You know, we're always moving forward and... I think we've also identified a way to groom players here and, and sell them to the top clubs in Europe. So now players in South America, when, you know, a lot of them are, are highly talented and are destined for it, they can still come to major league soccer, have a good life, um, be supported, still develop, and then potentially still make it to, to Europe if that's their dream, or they're very happy and content with being a star in major league soccer and, and trying to win trophies. So, Yeah, I think the league has done a terrific job of of growing. Now players are getting paid uh, properly um, and and still ha have some ways to go. But it's it's a league that has, I think, really attracted the top young talent. Now you're not just looking for the the old retirement players, which is uh, one way to describe it. Back in the day, I think now it's it's not that. One uh, player. Many thought maybe was retiring when he moved to LA Galaxy. He's now back in Milan scoring gold. What was yeah. your view of uh, Slatan Ibrahimovic and the impact he had during two seasons for the Galaxy? He is an incredible, incredible player. And I love the fact as well that he left and, and is part owner of Hammerby, which uh, pumped me up. But um, yeah, he came here and he performed. I think he had to showcase to the world that he still got it at his age, which he does. And I think uh, we're well aware of, of how good Slatan is at every step of the way, even in, in Milan and in, in Syria, he's still scoring goals when he's healthy, when he's on the field, he's, he's that good. He's gifted. He's, he's almost a, you know, once in a lifetime kind of player. So I think when he came to the United States, it was new. It took him um, zero time to adjust because he's that good, but he he's, he's constantly looking for challenges. And so he came, he felt like he, he got a good understanding and a, and a philosophy of how MLS is. 
there's some good things. There's some things that need to be improved. I think it didn't help that his, um, his team wasn't, I think the most situated team, it was a team that was kind of still trying to figure out who they are in, in a, in a rebuild. If I think if he was in another club and he probably would have maybe stayed in, in major league soccer, but, um, yeah, he, he, he came, he brought a lot of attention to the league. He's, he's, uh, he's masterful at, um, I think stirring up things at the right time. He, he, he's great at what he does. He's a, he's an entertainer and he's still got it. He's talented. I would have loved to have uh, played with him. That's for sure. But uh, yeah, I think everyone in, in major league soccer is very happy that he decided to come for a couple of years. He started out with a big ad you're welcome LA. Uh, and uh, how was his attitude appreciated? Well, one of my closest friends um, was in that locker room and, and said, yeah, he's, he's a great guy. Um, he, he connected with his teammates. It wasn't about, Oh, I'm slapped on. And, you know, I played here and here and I've won this and I've won this and I'm the greatest. It was, let me help you. And he, he had these expectations on players. He made everyone, he made the level rise, no doubt. And so, you know, from, from that standpoint, everyone was really happy that was in that locker room because he pushed you to be better. Now, some guys maybe didn't take it that way as they should have, but he, he came in with the best of intentions. Charlie Davis ensam på topp se till att Hammarby kan gå till ledningen. Ingen i Hammarby kommunicerade någonsin att Charlie skulle vara någon frälsare eller en poängspelare utan han var en ung utvecklingsbar spelare som i media målades upp som att han skulle vara färdig. Det tog ett år för honom att leverera det han gjorde i fjol och det var lite snabbare än vad vi till och med själva hade vågat hoppas på. Men han har fortfarande några steg kvar att ta och de hoppas vi som sagt att han ska kunna ta i år. If we go back to when you ended up in in Hammarby, you actually were on a kind of a trial with Ajax of the Netherlands and you got injured. And how come it turned out to be Hammarby instead? I don't know, but I'm 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 really thankful that that's the way it played out. So when I came over to Ajax, Ajax is, you know, probably the best place you can go as as a youngster to develop and play first team minutes. However, I think they were going to play, put me with the reserves at first. I pulled my hamstring in the last trial game and kind of in that situation of, I don't know what's next. And all of a sudden here I get a phone call and they, they say Hammerby has a contract on the table for me. So I fly over to Stockholm. I have a dinner with Tony Gustafsson and I knew it was the perfect match because if you have a manager who believes in you, fully believes in you and is committed to seeing you develop, knowing that, you know, there's probably going to be some ups and downs, which I had, that that's probably the best place for me. And it was. And so when I look at Stockholm, the people of Stockholm, the city, the league, it was, there's no better place. There was no better place for me to develop. Um, and it took me a year, <laughs> but uh, I am so grateful for, for, for that opportunity. What did you know about Hamabi before you signed? Absolutely nothing. I had never heard of Hammerby, didn't know it existed. Um, so it was one of those things when I came in, I had never, you know, been to Stockholm. I, I was really curious to see, you know, how the city was kind of made up 
and how I would be re- received. And then just to, to get kind of see where Tony was thinking my, my kind of ceiling was, and then the league, the team, kind of the style of play and how he, he figured, you know, he would use me. So he told me they'd play a stu- two striker system and, uh, and, and that, you know, I had all this talent and, and potential and he was going to push me as hard as I, I could to, to kind of maximize that. What was your reaction running into your first game with big crowd? Excitement that it was uh, finally a dream that became reality. Um, actually my first official game was, uh, against Copenhagen and, uh, in Copenhagen. And, and I, I just remember being like, this is a big time champions league club. It was a really good crowd. Um, actually there was a Swede playing up top for Copenhagen, uh, Marcus Alberg. And he, I think, I believe he scored that game, but I just remember thinking, This, this is it. This is what I had hoped for. And now I'm finally getting a chance to, to realize um, the professional that I can, can potentially be. You had quite a few uh, good players uh, at that time in the club. Uh, Eguren, or Sengen, Petra Andersson, Paulinho, uh, Kingston, the goalkeeper. Uh, how was Hammarby at that time? Incredible culture. Um, you know, I was a young um i would say cocky cocky kid who felt that i didn't have to train 100% every day and that i could just bring bring my 100% for the matches and and think that was okay and tony gustafson said that's not how it works as a professional you need to bring 100% every single day and sebastian gurren saw my talent and said, you need to be better every day. And you need to not only be, you need to try and be your best and better yourself after each training. And so I had a lot of, of the, I think the veterans in the locker room um, really pushing me to, to be better, to, to be the Charlie Davies that um, I ended up becoming uh, towards the end of, of my Hammerby days. And so when I look at the culture of the team, we are always together. We were always hanging out off the pitch as well as on the pitch. Uh, it was it was lighthearted. There were jokes, um, and we we had some great performances. I, I think I look back and I'm at, and I think to myself, how did we not win SM Gould once or really compete for it? Um, and I think we were always just maybe off by one player, maybe. Um, but we had a tremendous locker room, and and I think we we probably should have deserved more. What was the key in that you developed into a, a player that at the end was a regular in the U.S. men's national team? I'll never forget the one meeting I had with Tony Gustafsson probably halfway through the year um, in, in my first season. He sat me and he said, I see that you have an attitude because you don't start. And he start, I remember he started me, I think, the first four matches of, of the season and I didn't score. And I was putting all this pressure on myself. And he said, I'm going to, you're going to come off the bench now from, from here on out. And so every week I would train well here or there and have that magical training, training session where I'd score three, four, five goals. And then at the, on the weekend, I wouldn't be on the, the starting, it wouldn't be in the starting 11. And I would, I put my head down, I'd get so angry. 
And so six months in, he sits me down and says, Charlie, I decide when you're ready. I decide, not you. And so you have two options. You can go home back to the United States or you can put your head down and train hard every single day with no expectations. You just train hard. And when you start, you will start. But until that day, you just train. You keep your mouth shut and you work hard. And I thought to myself, okay, here it is. Well, obviously I'm not going to go home. I'm going to put my head down and train hard. So every day I would train and then I would do extra. And, and I remember Mikhail Jensen pulled me outside and said, Hey, you got all these tools. It's just that, that the shot, your, your final ball or your final, your final chance creation, it needs to be sharper and more efficient. I want you to just take touches and just practice hitting the side of the net. So you get used to it. And so I literally trained every day and I look forward to the extra because it was just finishing. And then I want to say with four games to go that year, Tony finally gave me my start. And I want to say the first one was against Helsingborg at home against Henrik Larsson. And who was I, your idol? Who was my idol? And it was, it was a nil nil game. I think that's how it finished. And um, I remember having a conversation with, with Henrik and he said, you know, just keep going. You know, you're, you're doing well. It was one of my better games with hold up play, which is one area that Tony wanted me to get better in. And then to finish that year, the hat trick against guys, it all clicked and it all clicked with my teammates because they had seen me in training, but that doesn't mean anything if you're not delivering in the matches. And so when I finally hit that hat trick, I think everyone thought, okay, we have something special here. I knew that, that I was ready to go, but I think now it was the club and the fans and my teammates who thought, okay, next year is going to be his year. And it, it was in a way, what pressure did you feel that, I mean, Hamabi was a stepping stone to going to a bigger club. What pressure did you feel there? I never felt pressure um, after, after that Geist match because the pressure was I have to score in Al-Swenskan. I have to score in the league. And when I scored a hat trick, um, the pressure all went away. And I knew, okay, this is how I have to have success for my club and, and that'll translate for me. And so that next season, I scored in the first home game I believe. Uh, and then it kind of just kept going. And me and Petter Anderson developed a, a fantastic uh, partnership. Too bad he had to go and he he was sold. I think if we kept to get Sebastian Aguren as well, we probably would have had um, been able to compete for titles. But I just kept growing. And, you know, towards the end of the year, I was looking for, because I saw my friends getting moves to Europe and I felt okay, one more season and, uh, and I'll be good to go. Um, I, I'm ready for that next step. And so it didn't come, but I was able to play in the Olympics. And, you know, I, I had a good uh, game against Nigeria and I just felt like I kept getting better. And so in 2009, um, that the, my final season with Hammerby, I knew every time we played someone, they're like, We got a Mark Charlie. He's the danger guy. I felt I was getting marked by two, two, sometimes three defenders on the opposing teams, but we didn't have enough on our squad to compete for, for a trophy. And so I think that's when I knew for sure I, I had to leave to continue my development. And with the national team, you know, I, I find I broke through for that Confederations Cup. And I knew once I you taste that level. And you're playing against Puyol, you're playing against Kaka and Xavi. 
you can't leave it. You can't touch it and then leave it and not want, want to, more of it. And so I was kind of of that mindset that if I want to be the best Charlie Davies I can be, I need, need to be playing that level every week. And so that's kind of where I was at that moment. And, and I think Hammerby as well were, were keen on, on getting a, a transfer fee. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Dagen efter beskedet att Charlie Davis stängs av i fem matcher är Hammarbyanfallaren starkt kritisk till fotbollsförbundets disciplinämnd. Anytime Hammarby uh, does something wrong, they they want to uh, really make an example out of Hammarby, and uh, I think they they definitely take the fullest out of uh, any suspension they can give Hammarby or any penalty. I don't know who's making the decisions if uh, there's an Iko or Hugh Gordon guy uh, making decisions, but it's pretty tough. It's definitely frustrating for the club. You were a little bit controversial also. You remember the elbows, <laughs> Nicky Almebeck. And I even had to have it when we invited you for our TV show, Ekdal vs. I had I brought on the helmet. You remember that? <laughs> I do. I do. Oh. Um, it, it, that match, I felt the pressure because... Um, Our, the, the head coach at the time, Bob Bradley, came over to watch that match. And Alejandro Bedoya was on the other side for Ouro So he was watching two Americans, but I think in particular he was watching me. And I knew that he was watching me for the Confederations Cup, for World Cup qualifying to be on that roster. And I wanted to perform. And we were having a, a really poor game uh, by my standards. And so Alma Back was... A, an aggressive defender. He was getting under my skin. He had kicked me a couple of times off the ball. And I said, you know what, this is it. I've had enough. And so the ball was, I thought I was being smart because by, by this time there was no VAR. Um, 
And so I threw my elbow back to catch him, caught him in the mouth, I believe, or the nose. I can't remember. And, um, and thought, okay, well, they, this was off the bomb. You know, they, I'll say I was trying to defend, um, you know, or hold, or play, hold up, hold up, uh, the ball. And so, um, yeah, I, I thought I got away with it in the match. It came back for the five game suspension, but, um, yeah. yeah and you were really upset about the five game suspension, even though you did it. Uh, I mean, yeah, of course. Cause I'm a competitor. I want to be on the pitch. And I thought I had, I had outsmarted the system, um, And and I thought the the video wasn't if it was clear cut close up and you see me cocking back fine I didn't think the video was clear enough as as they like to say in in, in VAR world clear and obvious so I felt that they were grabbing onto something and it it's fine because I I, I did do it so um, I was guilty I paid the price but I never really paid the price because I, I didn't get to come back and and properly serve the suspension. No, you didn't. And you didn't <laughs> at the time you didn't admit it either. But 12 years yeah. later, it's okay. I, 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 I admit it and, and I apologize uh to, to Alma Beck. Um, you know, I was a young uh you know kid who was frustrated and and typically we make those decisions, uh, those kind of actions at times when we're frustrated and you learn from them. Um and I, I never made that mistake uh again after that. So Have you uh, a lot of contact with the, your old teammates from that time in Hammarby? Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I would talk with um, Petter Andersson uh, all the time. We also got to reconnect in Denmark when he was he was playing there uh, for Michelin. And then, uh, yeah, Mon- Jose, uh, Jose Jose Montero, um, Alaji Sosa. Uh, yeah, I feel like there's a bunch of of Hammarby players that you know, I'll, I'll connect with and, and talk to every now. We always love to uh, reminisce about, about the good old days uh, of Stockholm. So I tell you right now, I, I, I have so much love um, and appreciation for the players I played with at Amarvi, but uh, also more, more importantly, the supporters in the club, just because of how they treated me, how they helped me and um, you know, the player they, they were able to help me uh, become. How close do you follow Hammarby today? Pretty close um, because both Mods Finger and David Usted I got to play with uh, as well in Denmark for Ronder. So I, I always keep an eye out on on Hammarby. I follow them on social media, so I, I always get to um, feel like I'm, I'm, you know, staying connected and and seeing how they're doing. Um, you know, if they have any stars. Um, you know, especially, you know, uh, with Slatan Ibrahimovic being part owner. So I was always curious to see what he was doing to, to promote the club. So when are you coming back to Taylor Tour Stadium? I cannot wait. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, my dream is to, to bring my family and to see my, my kids, um, have that experience and, and being like, Hey, this is where I started my career. Literally it's a dream. So As soon as all of this craziness disappears, um, I'm booking a flight uh, for for the family to come out and, and see Stockholm and and, and see Hammarby. A soccer player on the U.S. national team is in serious condition after a car accident in the Washington area early Tuesday morning that left one person dead. 
När Charlie Davis vaknade upp efter bilolyckan som höll på att kosta honom livet var det en helt ny tillvaro. I had a, my whole right leg was broken and uh, all the other injuries that I had that uh, you know hopefully uh, I'll be able to, to walk again. As you said in the, in the in the beginning of the interview, you had your ups and downs. And if we go back to 2009, you do a great uh, Confederation Cup in uh, South Africa. You set up a goal for Altidore against Spain and so on. But uh, and you're on the the national team when you're doing the qualifiers for the World Cup. And you the the night in uh, October 2009. What what happened? Yeah, um, it was it was something where I'm on this rapid rise, and I felt that you know coming into to to Liga in France and pl- putting in the performances I did, I felt oh man, I'm I'm ready for the Premier League, and I can be you know the, playing on those Champions League nights, and so you know things are happening so fast that you don't even have time to process them. That's kind of the trajectory I was on. I was on this rocket. Um, I left Hammerby and I was on this rocket. And so we played in October, um, October, I want to say 10th, we were playing in Honduras. And if we won, we qualified for the world cup, which we did in that match. I picked up a groin strain. It was really sore, uh, but I, I didn't pull it, but I knew I wasn't going to be able to play on Wednesday. And we were playing Lyon on the weekend. So I was like, oh, this is my first time playing against Lyon. And everyone knows who Lyon is, is a big, one of the biggest clubs in, in, in Europe or in France. And so on Monday night, I decided to go out with my roommate, Stu Holden, who um, is, is in the broadcast space as well. And so uh, I remember thinking to myself, well, why don't we go out? It's a Monday night in D.C. Why don't we go listen to some music and hang out? And he, he was like, Charlie, I'm, I'm playing Wednesday. I can't you're not playing so you can go ahead. And I'm like, I'm not going by myself. And he said, well, why don't you hit, call one of your friends? And if he can take you, um, if he'll, he'll go with you, then you go with him. And if not, you come back with me. And so I remember thinking of that at that point, is this the right decision? Um, yeah, I, I guess I'll call my friend. And my friend said, yeah, absolutely. I'll meet you there. So my roommate, Stu Holden, he said, have a good time. Let me know when you're coming back and, and I'll see you in the morning. But you so, you were on curfew. I mean, you weren't yeah, supposed we, to. We, yes, we had curfew at midnight. But this was probably around 10.30 when, when I left my roommate. So went to meet my friend. And around 2 o'clock in the morning, 2.30, uh, I said, okay. I wasn't drinking. I wasn't partying or anything like that. I said, okay, I'm going to go back. Um, and my friend said, are you sure? And I said, yeah. And so at that point, I ran into two people that I knew two girls that I knew from last time I came to DC and they said we're going to I can drop you off and I thought oh great I'm getting a ride home perfect I don't have to hop in a cab and my friend said again are you sure you want to go back and I said yeah I'm okay so I get in the car and I get behind the passenger so I'm in the back seat behind the passenger and we we go to a stoplight and she stops kind of hard and then I remember at that point I put on my seatbelt. And I texted my friend, I almost died, haha, you know, kind of like thing. And my friend said, oh, you'll be back. You'll be fine. Like, let me know when you get home. 
and that was the last moment I have, uh, memory I have of that night. And I wake up, I don't know if it was two days later, three days later, five days later, uh, I have just brief snapshots, but I remember the first time I woke up, I thought I was kidnapped in Honduras and that they were stealing my organs because I had 36 staples down my stomach. So I started to take them out because I figured, oh, you know, I'm a genius. I can, I can figure out what they took um, in, in internally. And I probably got to the fourth staple and I stopped because I was bleeding and I thought, okay, that's probably not the best idea, but I'm fast. So no one can catch me. So I pop up, I kind of lean up and the nurse sees me and runs over and says, no, no, lie down. And I said, no, you tell me what I'm doing here. And she's like, you're involved in a serious car accident. And I said, anybody can say that. Where am I? And she said, Mr. Davies, you're involved in a very serious car accident and you're in Washington, D.C. And we don't know if you're ever going to be able to run again. And I, I thought to myself, okay, I'm, I'm not in Honduras. <laughs> and I think she might be right. And then I was put with more medication and I think I was out for another week or so. So I was put on under two weeks of medically induced coma. And so then when I finally woke up and, and I wasn't on uh, so much medication, they had kind of walked me through what had happened, um, all my injuries. And um, I think that's kind of when I, I started to realize my life could be drastically different, but I wasn't yet ready to accept that I wasn't going to be able to play in the World Cup. I thought with my mentality, my mindset, no matter what, I can overcome some of these obstacles. And so I was so curious with when, when can I start rehabbing? You know, when can I get out of the hospital? So I spent a month in the hospital and my first day in the rehab hospital, um, which was, so I spent about three weeks in the hospital. I went across the street to the rehab hospital because I still had to relearn how to walk how to take a shower, how to put on clothes, how to eat food. A lot of these things I forgot from the brain injury that I had. And so uh, when I was relearning how to walk, there were women, older women in their 40s, 50s, 60s who had helmets on, who were like walking around me. And I figured I can't be in, in this space. This is not good for me. If I'm trying to play in a World Cup and I see people who are out walking me in helmets, old, older women, th this isn't going to work for me. So it took me about 10 minutes to, to figure out how to move my leg again, to walk. And I, I cried for the first time. Uh, my father cried for the first time. I hadn't seen him cry. I don't think my whole life I had never seen him cry. Um, and so that was a powerful moment. So I, I moved to Delaware where our national team trainer uh, lived. And so he thought when he first saw me, oh my God, this is like Humpty Dumpty. And I got to put them together again. I, I couldn't st you know stand up longer than one minute without getting dizzy. So that's kind of when the process started for me of trying to get back on the pitch. And, and miraculously, I mean, it, or you could say you were absolutely, absolutely insane to think that I could get back for the World Cup in six months. But that was the drive I had. And I would do 12-hour rehab days every day. Um, you, you, uh, you broke two bones in your right leg, your yes. elbow, nose, forehead, eye socket. You also suffered a ruptured bladder and bleeding in your brain i mean it's yeah really serious I mean, i mean a broken femur so when i was rehabbing i was asking questions who else has had my injuries you know who can i model my rehab after and they're like nobody no one the only way you break your femur is in a, in a, a high impact kind of incident which typically is a car accident 
Um, so I broke my, my femur and my tibia and my fibula and my right leg. So my right leg was looked like an elephant. It was so swollen. Um, and then my left elbow was dislocated and fractured. And from that dislocation and fracture, I could not use my left hand. So all the nerves were asleep. So I had no movement of my left, my left arm, uh, hand. And then, um, you know, the, of all those injuries, probably the brain bleed, the brain injury was probably the most significant long-term because I had to relearn everything. And, and I went from playing with instincts and, and knowing how to move and run and cut and to forgetting how to do a lot of those things. You, you kind of start to pick it up with muscle memory, but some of the things that I used to do so naturally, I, I couldn't do and still couldn't, can't do. So, um, that was, that was a struggle, but, um, how, how, how was the process? I mean, one woman was killed and yes. the other woman was actually sentenced to jail. I think she mm -hmm. got two years. Uh, how was yeah. that process? Even though you weren't, uh, I mean, your guilt was uh, zero, but you were still involved in a car crash where one of the girls you knew died and yeah. the other one went to prison. I would say my guilt was at a million. It was not zero. I, I felt the most guilt probably of all because I had this tremendous opportunity. Um, I had my, my life dream, my life goals in my hands, ready to go playing in a world cup. There's nothing better. And not only that starring in a world cup that could potentially take your, your country to a world cup final. That's the, that was kind of the thought process. Um, because we had gone to the confederations cup final, we beat Spain and they eventually won the world cup that year. And so I thought, I think we all thought we have something special here. And if we can continue to develop and harness that, there's no, there's, there's nothing keeping us from getting to a world cup semifinal. If you get to a world cup semifinal, anything can happen. And that literally could have played out because they got to Ghana, they lost to Ghana in a tight one and Ghana lose the tight one to, to Uruguay, probably the best path to get to a world cup semifinals. Um, but, you know, I, I, I felt the most guilt that you could possibly feel because I put myself in that situation. And so I wake up and I realize my life has been spared because I, I'm still alive, even though my body's mangled, I'm still given a second chance at life. And so I, in, you're, you're instantly forced to change the way you think. And I used to think that football, soccer was everything that was life. And then I quickly realized that that is not only not the truth, but sports in general is not the truth, that there's so much more to life than that. And so I wanted to live life to one, make up for this, this mistake that I made. Um, I felt that I let down not only my family, my parents, my, my, my brother, my girlfriend, Nina, who's now my wife, but also my teammates and my country and the coaches and everyone that believed in me. And really, if they, if you look back, I'm the reason why probably why we didn't go as far as we could have. The team tried to change the way they played or try, they tried to put someone in to, to make up for the way I played and that didn't work out. So I look at it as, man, I, I, I couldn't, I had so many sleepless nights because I, I put that on myself. So I, the, the, the way I was able to move forward was, This happened for a reason, um, to change the way 
I think about things to help people. Cause if I can overcome this, there's, there's no limit to how many people I could help who, who maybe go through something similar to this being at the top, the peak of their life to now rock bottom. How, how did you overcome this? I literally took it day by day. I said, for me to, to get over this, it's gotta be physically and emotionally being able to, to change and um, to appreciate life and not take anything for granted. So every day I'd wake up with a smile. I still wake up super happy and with a smile on my face, but I knew, okay, today the win is if I can do a little bit more, if I can. So once I got through that process of trying to rebuild my body, but I was also rebuilding my mind to think, what can I do to help people? How can I, you know, inspire people? How can I, if I meet someone for the first time, do they have a, a positive kind of uh, interaction with me? Do they leave with a smile on my face? You know, I realized that if I'm still here, given the car accident, given how I grew up, you know, with, with a mother who, who suffers from a severe, severe bipolar disorder, who a father who suffered from a drug addiction, to car, this crazy car accident, you know, being poor, going through that car accident, and then going through cancer and twin, uh, twin boys that were uh, premature, uh, three months, if I can do all of this, and still wake up every day and have this excitement and have this kind of uh, outlook on life, who the hell can't, who the hell can't. Um, and so I, I think that pro- allows people to look at the positive things in life and not necessarily rely on the things that you don't have or the things that you're, you're sour about or, or complaining about. It's don't complain. How, how can you complain? And I think I carried that with me. Every team I played on after it was like, Oh man, this guy's leg is an inch and a half shorter. So he's got to learn how to walk with like a limp to make it look normal now. And he's not complaining. How can, how can I act complain about anything or not be appreciative of anything? If, if he's not complaining. So I think that's how I get through every day is just being thankful. I'm thankful every day because I know how things, how things uh, can change rather quickly. What, what was the reaction from your teammates and from the coach? Since you, I mean, technically you were not guilty. That's what I meant that you were not driving yeah. the car, but you still left uh, the hotel when you should have been in the hotel and so on. Yep. How, what was the reaction from the teammates and the coaches? Well, I paid the price. Right. So I think if there, there's always, you know, things where players can break rules or break curfew or break, you know, uh, a promise. Right. And nothing happens to them except now people can be mad and angry. I think because I was nearly dead and my life was going to be forever changed that it was, okay, you paid the price. We forgive you. And, and that's all you can ask for is forgiveness. And I think they were, they were hopeful that I could live a normal life at that point. I don't think, I don't think there's a single person that thought I could play again, not a single person, including the doctors and probably including my family. Um, yeah. And, uh, were you part of the trial against the girl who drove and how, what contact did you have with the family who lost a daughter? No contact with any, anyone. Um, not part of uh, any trial. Um, you know, for me, it was, I'm alive, focus on, on myself and what I can do to make up, um, you know, what had happened to my teammates, to my family, to my country. 
And then it was, you have to move on. You, you have to not think about, you know, the, the past, you learn from it, grow from it, be a better person. And, and that's what I've been able to do. You uh, sued the place uh, where you were at, and also I think uh, some company that was involved for the, the event. What happened with that suit? Uh, it was settled. After the car accident, it was doubtful that I might be able to live a normal life again. When my boys were born three months prematurely, I didn't know if we would ever get to bring them home. And then, a few months ago, we found out that I had cancer. I think anytime you hear that, that word cancer, you just think done for the season, you know, or done for longer. And and again, he's, he's kind of proved everyone wrong, you know? He's done that since he's been here. Uh, you came back and started playing, and uh, how was it to, uh, take the steps playing you played uh, in uh, social uh, loaned you mm -hmm. to uh, the MLS and then you went back and how was it to try to perform at the level that you weren't really close <laughs> it was it was so difficult um, when I went back to FC social I, I was really frustrated because they wouldn't clear me medically to go to the World Cup camp and that's when you know you you officially have to concede the dream is gone and it'll never come back and i wasn't willing to 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 concede that dream until it was until it was written and written down and so um i remember i would hide in training i would try and not get the ball even though i was there because i would lose it every time i i didn't have like my balance or coordination properly it was so tough um, just before that World Cup in, in 2010, even though I was hoping to go to the World Cup camp, just to say I was I was at the camp, not even to go to the World Cup, just to to be there and send them off and say, look how far I came, uh, surprise, you know, and it wasn't meant to be. And and Bob Riley called me to let me know that he was proud of how far I've come, but that we were going to have this talk eventually, that I wasn't going to be ready, and um, to keep going. And And I'll always remember that because he didn't have to do that. He didn't have to, he could have just said, we're done with Charlie. He, he broke curfew. Like we don't need to talk about him because he's not involved. He never did that. He never gave up on me. He always supported me. And so that's something I'll always be grateful and thankful for. Um, but then I started to start, started to get better in trainings um, post the world cup and, and into that, um, that next season around Christmas time was the last match before Christmas break in France the coach put me on the bench for the first time I made the squad against Bordeaux. And I was like, Oh my God, I'm finally, I'm finally getting there. Um, I didn't play, but I was on the bench and that felt good. And then, you know, just after the break, he said, Charlie, I think you're getting closer, but you need to go somewhere where you're going to get consistent minutes. And so I, I got loaned back to the United States to play in major league soccer for DC United. So that was the crazy Thing for me is the same city that this accident occurred in now i'm going back to play there um so that first match i had all the doctors and, and nurses come out uh who helped me the night of the accident to watch me play and say hey you know i, I might be playing professional soccer again officially and that night i scored two goals and you can imagine the emotion um that took place but yeah i i went 
back to DC and, you know, you still got to deal with injury. I'd pick up a hamstring injury here or groin injury here because of my, my leg difference, the leg length difference, um, just your body trying to compensate for so many changes. And, you know, I, I felt like I started to push through a little bit. I went back to France and that was such a, a major accomplishment for myself to say, I played in two match legal league on matches, official matches against Ren and against uh, Toulouse. Um, so full circle, I was, I was never the same player because I lost, you know, two, two steps, two or three steps of speed. So I was still kind of fast, but not the, the, the quickness I had in the past. Um, but I was so proud of myself to know that I, I got back to, to be able to play in, in Liga again, go to Denmark, never settled there, um, with the club Ronders. I, I'm not sure what it was. I always look back. I'm like, I had great training sessions, a, a good team, good locker room. Um, but for whatever reason, I never was given a, a proper opportunity. And I never took the opportunities I was given um, in, in the matches that I came in to. And so I came home to the revolution and that's really kind of where I got back to being the best player I could be given um, Charlie Davies 2.0 now. And so um, I settled in rather nicely. I understood where I could have success, how I could help my team. And uh, things were were looking really good. Yeah, you had a a great season there in uh, 2015. There was even talk about the national team. You scored 10 goals, and uh, how come you couldn't build on that? I just I think I was just missing, you know, the the X factor. And so the X X factor for me was always my speed and quickness, and it was elite, it was world class. And then you, if you don't have that. You could still be good, and I was I was smart. I was so much more in tuned with the match and and you know movements. But if you want to be a game changer, and especially on the international level, you have to have a little bit something different. And that was that for me, and I didn't have that anymore. So, did I deserve to be on the national team? <laughs> Probably not. And so I was, and me, that's I think me as a competitor was I was always pushing to catch my old self, and it was never going to be. Till as long as I played professional soccer, I was going to try and try and play to get myself on the national team. I could have been 35, 36, 37. If I'm still playing, that that's that's what's pushing you. That's what's going to keep you motivated. I think it's similar similar to a Slatan Ibrahimovic. What keeps him going? Because he could have retired, you know, five, 10 years ago if he wanted to. He's won so many trophies, but it's that success and and pushing yourself to to be better, no matter how old you are. I mean, it's rare. It's rare to have, and I think I had that kind of um, determination. You even went on to Philadelphia Union, but in the mean, in the meantime, you even had cancer, as you talked about before. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, a very rare cancer. Uh, and uh, how were you able to overcome that obstacle? That was the lowest point in my life. I, I thought, you mm-hmm. know, after the car accident and, and near death experience, and, and not getting to to be fulfilled that the, the potential that you had as a soccer player. I thought that would, there's nothing that would come close to that as long as you're alive. And I was wrong. Um, when they told me I had cancer and my twin boys were still in the hospital um, in, in the intensive care unit, I thought this is it. Life finally caught up with me. And now I'm not going to get to see my kids grow. I'm not going to get to be a father or a husband. And, that was kind of it. Cause when you hear cancer, you usually think of chemotherapy, uh, radiation, you think of death. 
and, you know, not knowing anything else about what you have. So um, thankfully I'm in Boston and for sarcoma treatments, it's um, arguably the best in the world. So Dr. Andrew Wagner um, sat me down, um, told me kind of what I was dealing with and uh, that, that it was caught very early. So I always look at, man, the reason it was caught early was because the boys were born so early, which caused me to get fatigued, which caused me to then pull a muscle for them to find this tumor. So it's weird the way things have worked. And I think everything happens for a reason again. And from the strength and the experience I've had from overcoming, you know, a near death experience, I, I was almost ready for this challenge, no matter what, what comes in front of me, I'm, I'm going to handle it. I have to be strong for my family. I have to continue that positive kind of outlook. And so I know that's not, I'm not done. I don't know what's in store for me next, but I think what I have learned that is if you do have the right people around you, the support system, and you do keep, uh, you know, looking at things in a, in a positive frame of, of, of mind, a positive light that you will overcome it. And they don't last. The tough times don't last. Great. Thanks a lot for talking to me. Thank you. It's, it's been a throwback. I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, Talks to Mickey. Talk to uh, <laughs> Greg. Podden är producerad av Anton Toft och klippt av Daniel Eriksson. Vi tar tacksamt emot alla synpunkter, idéer, önskemål eller vad det nu må gälla. Enklast är att maila mig olof.lundatv4.se eller skriva till mig på Instagram eller Twitter och då är det Olof Lund som gäller ett ord. Stort tack för den här veckan. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.